Our call to worship is from the book of Isaiah. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Our prayers of approach this morning begin with one that uh, was originally in patterns and prayers for worship and is also in gathering for worship, the uh, Baptist liturgy resource, and then a second stanza which take us on a little further in our thinking and praying. So let's come to God together in prayer. Let us pray. Living God, in this building, used to the sound of singing, where there have been baptisms and funerals, where people have come to be married or to celebrate the birth of a child. This building, where some have wept and some have been filled with joy, where people have struggled with the deep things of life, have prayed urgently, been stirred and changed. In this building, where you so often have been with your people, be with us now. Living God, in this church, made of people who gather to offer worship, to share in rites of passage to mark major life events, to sing, pray and learn together. In this church, where some have heavy hearts, and others a lightness of spirit, where some struggle and others seem to glide effortlessly onward, where certainty and doubt, faith and unbelief coexist within each one. In this church, these people who meet in the name of Christ, be with us now. Amen. First of our readings this morning is Psalm 26. (coughs) Declare me innocent, O Lord, because I do what is right and trust you completely. Examine me and test me, Lord. Judge my desires and thoughts. Your constant love is my guide. Your faithfulness always leads me. I do not keep company with worthless people. I have nothing to do with hypocrites. I hate the company of the evil and avoid the wicked. Lord, I wash my hands to show that I am innocent and march in worship round your altar. I sing a hymn of thanksgiving and tell of all your wonderful deeds. I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. Do not destroy me with the sinners. Spare me from the fate of murderers, those who do evil all the time and are always ready to take bribes. As for me, I do what is right. Be merciful to me and save me. I am safe from all dangers in the assembly of his people. I praise the Lord. Second reading 
is from Romans chapter 12. So then, my brothers and sisters, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is a true worship that you should offer. Do not conform yourselves to the standards of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. Then you'll be able to know the will of God, what is good and is pleasing to him and is perfect. And because of God's gracious gift to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you should. Instead, be modest in your thinking and judge yourself according to the amount of faith that God has given you. We have many parts in the one body and all these parts have different functions. In the same way, though we are many, we are one body in union with Christ and we are all joined to each other as different parts of one body. So we are to use our different gifts in accordance with the grace that God has given us. If our gift is to speak God's message, we should do it according to the faith we have. If it is to serve, we should serve. If it is to teach, we should teach. If it is to encourage others, we should do so. Whoever shares with others should do it generously. Whoever has authority should work hard. Whoever shows kindness to others should do it cheerfully. Love must be completely sincere. Hate what is evil. Hold on to what is good. Love one another warmly as Christian brothers and sisters and be eager to show respect for one another. Work hard and do not be lazy. Serve the Lord with a heart full of devotion. Let your hope keep you joyful. Be patient in your troubles and pray at all times. Share your belongings with your needy fellow Christians and open your homes to strangers. Ask God to bless those who persecute you. Yes, ask him to bless, not to curse. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Have the same concern for everyone. Do not be proud, but accept humble duties. Do not think of yourselves as wise. If someone has done you wrong, do not repay him with wrong. Try to do what everyone considers to be good. Do everything possible on your part to live in peace with everybody. Never take revenge, my friends, but instead let God's anger do it. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay back, says the Lord. Instead, as the scripture says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them a drink. For by doing this, you will make them burn with shame. Do not, do not let evil defeat you. Instead, conquer evil with good. It actually feels slightly strange standing back behind the lectern after spending the summer wandering around, telling stories. Some of you will be really relieved that I'm back where I belong, in my cage, and others perhaps less so. Anyway, I think there are two things I want to say to you before we begin to explore our passage from Romans. The first of them um, emerges from a long time ago when I was a ministerial student and I was chatting to one of the church members of the church where I was on placement just ahead of doing that sermon you have to do when you do a series on stewardship about money. And she said, you know, there had been a time in her life when she'd gone to church and life was difficult and what she needed was a word of encouragement 
She didn't need somebody to say, give us your money. So one of the first things I want to say is what I'm not saying today is, give us your money. Well, I am. But only if this is your regular place of worship and only if you are able to and only if you believe that is what God would like you to do. And I will try to find that word of encouragement somewhere along the line for those who may need one. The second thing I want to say is that you might think that's a very nice, convenient, contrived passage for today. Well, it slightly is and it slightly isn't. Um, It is the lectionary reading from Romans, plus last week's lectionary reading from Romans. The great advantage of the lectionary means I can't just pick the passages I want to make the points I want to make. I'm not saying I never choose passages for specific purposes, but we are using the lectionary as our general basis in this church for our ordinary services because that avoids the risk to some degree of preachers just, well, abusing a position, frankly, to say what they want to say all the time. We're guided by something beyond ourselves, something bigger, and I think that's got to be a good thing. So the challenge then is not to try and squeeze that passage into what I want it to say, but to let it speak for itself and trust that those words of encouragement might be there, and also the words that help us respond to our pledges today. The metaphor of the church as a human body is used by Paul in letters to Rome and to Corinth. And it's perhaps worth holding that in mind because the situations in Corinth and Rome were not exactly the same. They were different. There were unique factors about each of them. we're generally given the impression that Corinth was a very licentious place and the church was trying to work out, well, how do we be church with all this stuff going on around us that we're not quite sure about? And, of course, Rome was the centre of the empire, so being church there had its own challenges as a, a kind of illicit, just-about religion in a melee of other religions. So it seems to me that there's something general that Paul is wanting to say that transcends that local culture, that local context, because he says in each of those letters, the church is like, or in fact the church is, a body, and every one of you within it has a role. He says that the the church is a body where everybody is equally important It's not that the minister or the priest or whatever is in charge. It's not that the church secretary is in charge, which I'm sure all church secretaries always have been eternally grateful. It's not that the rich are in charge or more important or the poor are unimportant and should be ignored. Everybody is of equal value. And of course, in this letter to the Roman church, He gives some examples of particular roles and gifts that may exist. Teachers, prophets, evangelists. It's not a tick list. He's not saying, you've got to have one of these, and you've got to have one of these, and you've got to have one of those, and if you haven't, whoops. He's saying these are the kinds of gifts that will be present in the church. And if you have that gift, or some other gift... Think about how you employ it. 
And then in both Romans and in Corinth, and more obviously so in Corinth, he talks about the characteristics of love that should exist within that church community. So in uh, Corinthians, for those who are up on their scriptures, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about spiritual gifts and the, the church as a body. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love with that wonderful hymn to love. And then chapter 14 goes back to the whole gifts things. And here he does it all in just in one chapter in Romans 12. I listened to Lionel's service from last week. Um, so some of what I would say will overlap a little bit with that. But he was really thoughtful and helpful in what he said on the first part of Romans 12. He emphasised the centrality of interdependence and mutuality within the church. And I'm not going to repeat what he said about that. Um, If you haven't heard it, go and listen to it on the website because it's good stuff. But it's an essential understanding to making sense of this chapter. And for those of us for whom Hill Head is our regular place of worship, it helps us to think, well, how do I best play my part in this local expression of the body of Christ. So, some thoughts from that chapter. It's actually a continuation from what's said in Romans 11, because it begins with, therefore. So, in the light of what he's already said, which we're not going to go over again, this is what it means. If you believe in Jesus, this is what it means for you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's holy as in sacred, not holy as in totally, although it's probably both. just want to talk a little bit about the idea of living sacrifices. Um, first century Judaism, prior to the destruction of the temple, was a religion in which sacrifice was an everyday occurrence and it was central. If you sinned, you sacrificed. If you gathered in harvest, you sacrificed. If you had a newborn child, you sacrificed, and so on and so forth. And the surrounding Greek and Roman religions had rituals also that involved slaughter and blood sacrifice. You see, whatever religion you were part of, sacrifices had to be made, and they had to be dead. The life contained within the blood was poured out to the deity to achieve the desired purpose. So if that's the background, then what Paul says here is as terrifying as it is radical. He's saying you should offer your own body as a sacrifice. And this sacrifice, fortunately for us, doesn't necessitate the spilling of blood or the loss of life. It's a live sacrifice. And that's a very different thing from the dead sacrifices of that time and culture. I have a suspicion because we live in a money-based culture, we don't fully understand necessarily the significance of an animal sacrifice or indeed a grain sacrifice, which was also part of the culture. The animal you were going to to sacrifice had to be the pride of your flock or herd, a perfect specimen, completely healthy, absolutely full of potential. The best young ram who could have fathered who knows how many strong lambs is chosen. And all that potential is gone. The farmer loses it. It's slaughtered, it's offered to God. 
the grain that just might have been that bumper crop that you dreamed of, is burned. You see, whatever measure we use, whether it's the wool that might have come from the sheep, or the lambs, or the milk, or the cheese, or the bread, or the cakes, or whatever it is, all of that potential is let go of, so that the very, very best is offered to God. Against that background, the idea of a live human sacrifice, a whole life rich in potential offered to God, is a totally new way of thinking. Actually, it's not about losing the latent potential without ever knowing what it might have been. It's the lived actuality, the outworking of that potential, the whole of life that's offered. Whoever we are, whatever our unique gifts and abilities, talents and opportunities, we maximise them not for ourselves, not for personal gain, but in the context of lives centred on Christ, given over to God. So it almost turns the idea on its head that the sacrifice isn't loss, it's actually maximum potential realised, but realised in a certain way, with a certain worldview, a certain lens. So it's not a demand to offer to God what we cannot do or what we do not have. And I think that's important for all of us to hear. It's one that says, just as you are, offer yourself and offer your life to God. And that is the best, most acceptable offering or sacrifice that you can make. And it's a sacrifice not because it means spilling blood or losing life, not because it means not achieving what we could achieve, but we redirect all that away from selfishness and to the good of God, to the good of the world, to the good of creation. If you like, we spill our ability into that uh, offering. Sometimes we talk about sacrificial giving as that which hurts our pockets, well, at least a little bit. And sometimes that's true. But sacrificial giving is much bigger. It's the giving of our time, our ability, our energy, and our love. Well, actually, you already knew all of that, but, you know, I just thought I'd say it again. The next appeal that Paul makes is for realism. And it is couched in the language of those who might have slightly too grand an opinion of themselves, which Lionel explored very helpfully for you. But Paul, the apostle, goes on to tell people, be realistic about who you are, what you can do, what you can't do, what you can be, what you can't be. My experience over my well, probably about 45 years that I can remember, out of my 51 that I've lived, is that for every person who thinks they are better than they are, or more important than they are, there is at least one and probably several who think too little of themselves, who just say, well, actually, I'm only... Whatever it was. I I was helping at a coffee morning the other week, and I said, oh, no, no, I'm just the washer-upper. And somebody said to me, never say... I'm just a washer-upper, and and she was quite right. We're never just. We are. 
who we are, what we are. But the call here, I think, is to be real with ourselves about who we are and realistic in our giving, our responding. It seems to me that for each of us is a really clear message when we come to make those pledges, if we do. Don't overestimate what you can do. Don't overstretch yourselves. Now, there might be one or two people who actually need to be hearing the opposite, that, come on, try a bit harder, give a bit more. But be realistic. Don't overstretch yourself any more than you understretch yourself. If we're honest with ourselves, truly honest with ourselves, then we can make a realistic response that is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Because it sure isn't holy and acceptable to God for us to put ourselves below the breadline, to get in a mess financially. That doesn't honour anybody, doesn't achieve anything. So we need to be realistic. So far, what I've been talking about can be heard very much at a personal level. But right at the heart of what Paul says is this corporate image, the image, the metaphor of the church as a human body and more specifically as the body of Christ. We've already talked about the list of gifts that he gives as examples, things that the body can do in the same way that hands can draw and write and pick up and do surgery and tap computers and play beautiful music. But feet do walking about and running and jumping and controlling pedals on cars and things and and so on and so forth. You you can do that as well as I do. The thing is, everybody's important, no matter who they are, no matter what they are, and nobody is the complete package on their own. I suppose one of the questions that fascinates me a bit is what transforms that collection of body parts into a living being? Now, no matter how good medical research is, you can't just get a collection of body parts, bolt them together and do the, the Frankenstein thing and get a living creature. It just doesn't happen. So what is it that confer, transforms a congregation of believers in Jesus into a church rather than just a collection of believers in Jesus? There has to be some kind of binding agent to hold it all together, some kind of glue, if you like, But more than that, some kind of vital force that enables the body to live. Well, actually, you already know what the answer to that is. You don't need me to tell you. The answer is love. Let your love be genuine, says Paul um, in verse 9 of that chapter. Love one another with mutual affection, verse 10. It's not mushy, slushy, feel-good stuff, although sometimes it might be, but tough resilient, transformative power that is seen in its outward action and attitude. Be determined and tenacious, that's posh for stubborn, as you know, in your call to serve the Lord, says Paul. This, after all, is the purpose of the body. It's raison d'etre. Be clear what you stand for as those who claim to be disciples of Jesus, the one whose whole life was spent in the cause of love. So what does that look like in practice? Well, actually, if you've got one of those pledge forms or if you can remember what's on that pledge form, you will see that 
amazingly, because we didn't look at Romans 12 when we drew up the list, did we? No. Actually, the same things are there. He says, this is what love looks like. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, generous to those in need, hospitable to others, especially strangers, show empathy, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, and as far as possible, be peaceable amongst each other, never seeking revenge. If you look at those pledge forms, you'll see that all of that is there. The promise to pray regularly for the project. It seems obvious, doesn't it? But, you know, we can sign up for that one. The pledge to encourage each other when we're feeling down. And I do sometimes, so I don't see why you wouldn't. The promise to walk alongside one another in the difficult times and encourage each other. The pledge to help explain the project to each other and to our neighbours, the promise to stick together, the promise to show hospitality. Some people can offer a room for a meeting. Some people can't. It's not better or worse, it's different. And for those who can, yes, the promise to give financially. You see, the point is that we don't need a little kiddie song to tell us that the church is made of people, although we kind of like it, or I do anyway. But perhaps we do need a little bit of a reminder that we're all in it together, that who I am and how I am affects you. And sometimes I'm grumpy, and sometimes I'm sad, and sometimes I'm a bit mad, and so on and so forth. And how you are affects me, and how we are affects each other. At the end of the day, no matter how much we love this building, it's bricks and mortar and finite and failing. What really matters is the community, the people whose lives are deeply intertwined, rooted and grounded in the love of God expressed in Christ. So for those of us who worship here regularly and have their names in our directory, we are invited to make our pledges today in relationship to the proposed redevelopment of our building, and that's good. But actually in doing that, we make something much more important by way of a pledge. We pledge to be together in all of that process, no matter where it takes us, no matter what the future holds, good days, bad days, and so forth. For all of us, whether this is our normal place of worship or not, there is that encouragement that our unique personhood is of value. And we have something to offer the church, universal, Catholic, whatever language you prefer to use, that nobody else can bring. So for all of us, whether this is our church or not, is the invitation to dedicate or rededicate our lives to the service of God as a lifelong, vibrant sacrifice. Today, individually and collectively, we have the invitation to take our own next steps in faith, in hope and in love. Amen. Isn't it great to be all back together? I know it doesn't always work, it's not always the best thing, but there is something truly wonderful 
about all being together, whatever age we are, whatever stage we are. We are all part of the church and, and we've got this fantastic picture that we have made of the church made of people. The grown-ups have been having to think quite hard because I've been talking to them about some quite hard stuff in the Bible. But one of the pictures that's used is that we're all like a body together and everybody's important. And things we can do to show our love for each other are as unique and different as we are. So grown-ups might be able to do things that children can't and children can certainly do things that grown-ups can't. What we're going to do now is we're going to collect as an offering to God... Um, pledge forms. Um, hopefully, the grown-ups who've received them have got their envelopes, um, and the children I know have been writing and drawing what they want to promise as well, because this is a promise day for everybody, however old you are. And if you're a visitor, we're fantastic to have you with us, and we just ask for your prayers as we do this. We're not expecting you to make any pledges or promises. Um, but what we're going to do is. There's going to be some, a song that was going to appear on the screen and that will just be sung over and over. And three of our Sunday school are going to bring round baskets in which we will collect the envelopes, the drawings, whatever we have to offer. Um, it doesn't matter which kind of envelope it is. We're happy to take all the envelopes and after the service I'll sort them out as to which is which. And, and then I will say a prayer when we've gathered them all up. So who are my three people who Fiona has appointed to be collectors? Ailey, Aidan, and Atlanta. Okay, so we're going to, I'll just move the um, thing on. We'll just wait till the people start singing. And then you can just take, um, Atlanta, if you start there. Aidan, if you start there. And if you start at the back. Loving God, you have made each one of us unique and precious. And filled each one of us with amazing potential. Lots of hopes, lots of dreams, lots of ideas and lots of ability. And today we pledge some of that, out of all of that, to you, to be used in this place, this church, this community that we love. And we ask that your love will just be so strong for us that we can stick together through good times and bad as we walk together in faith. And so we sing together one more time. Take, oh, take me as I am. sending God, present with us as we have privately pondered our pledges, silent witness to our decisions and our offerings. Bless us with courage and compassion, energy and empathy, perseverance and patience, so that in all we are and all we do, we may carry the good news of Christ wherever we may be this day and every day.